The Hatred of the World. This is Lesson 156 in your books. And uh, let's begin. Oh, by the way, open up to John 15. John 15. I went ahead and looked. We will be in the farewell discourse until we break in May. I kind of thought we would be. We'll be parked there even when we come back. Lord willing, in September, we'll be in this same discourse. But there's, a, there's so much meat here. I hope you don't mind because I think we're learning a lot. This is a deep lesson this morning. I could tell by the faces of the women yesterday that it was deep. And they just kept saying it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time and just get right into the lesson. If you'd bow in prayer with me. Father God, we are so well aware, I'm sure each and every one of us, of how far short we fall of really, really bearing the name of Jesus in this world as we should and of being prepared to suffer for simply being identified with him, simply being his branches and hopefully his friends. I pray that every one of us could pray the prayer that Paul did, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and this part of the prayer as well and the fellowship of his sufferings. Forgive us for so often being so very faithless and so unwilling to bear reproach for our Savior and to suffer for well-doing. We are more than well aware of the many times that we have failed to speak a word for him or failed to do what we should because of our fear of men, because of our awareness of the world around us and our unwillingness to, to get out of our comfort zone. So, Lord, cleanse us of these sins. Deliver us from having an eye for the approval of men and help us to to not be silent when we should be reaching out with the message of the gospel and for the sake of the cross. And now we pray that we would be able to all focus on this difficult lesson. Um, Just help us to really, really have ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us through the words of our Savior. And we will be sure to give you the glory and honor and praise for whatever is accomplished here this morning. For we do pray, Jesus, in your beloved name. Amen. In the verses for today's lesson, which will be John 15, verses 18 to 25, we're only going to cover eight verses, the Lord Jesus continued the instructional part of his farewell discourse to his men. He forewarned them this time about the world's angry hatred that would not only be unleashed on him in just a matter of a few hours, but that they themselves would experience soon after his departure. Now, because they were his friends, he would confide in them as he had with his friend Moses. Remember, we talked about that last week. And as was true with Abraham, another Old Testament person who Jesus, who God called his friend, he would not conceal from them truths that they needed to know. Just like Abraham needed to know about the Lord's plan to destroy Sodom, these men, his disciples, needed to know about this hatred that they would encounter from the world. They did need to know about the unjustified animosity that would be fostered against them simply because of the fact that they were his little children and his true abiding branches and his friends. The vine, remember, the vine was planted by the great vine dresser himself. But where was that vine planted? It was planted in an environment, an environment that was called, is called the world. It was planted in an environment of hostility. That hostility is called hatred. And they needed to know about this. Now, this hatred, this hatred is satanic. Therefore, it isn't just dislike of the Lord Jesus and his followers. It is malevolent, evil, malicious, satanic hatred. Get that in your minds. It is satanic, wicked hatred. The world doesn't just dislike us. It hates us. 
Now, why do you think that the Lord Jesus had been so urgently and so repeatedly commanding his disciples to love one another? Remember how he said that this was the new commandment? This is the 11th commandment, that we love one another. Why do you think he had been telling them that? Well, not only because mutual love among Uh, And between the branches is a necessity for a healthy vine. We discussed that last week, but also, as we see in today's passage, also because he knew how important it was going to be for them to be unified by love when the persecution began. They would need one another once the world's hatred was aimed at them. They would desperately need to be united by the bonds of brotherly love in order to strengthen and encourage each other as they encountered the world's hatred. He didn't want to leave them as naive naive sheep in the midst of ravenous wolves. And he didn't want them to be surprised when evil opposition you know, was in their faces. He didn't want their spirits to be quenched and for them maybe to give up. You know, that's like one of those seeds that's sown in the ground. And as soon as the sun comes out and they get a little heat, what happens? They wither away. He didn't want them to be surprised at the hatred and the animosity that they would encounter from the world. He wanted them to know because to be forewarned is to be what? Forearmed. He wanted them to be forearmed. And then also he told them ahead of time so that their faith would be increased because when they did encounter the hatred that he predicted here, they would once again say, okay, Jesus told us about this. He knew the end from the beginning. He truly was God. He told us we'd encounter hatred and even be martyred, some of us, and we, and we are, so we know that he is truly who he said he was. So in today's study, we're going to be discussing the Lord's earnest forewarning about the attitude that we as true branches in the vine and as his obedient servant friends can expect to receive from the world if we are what? Abiding and obeying. If we are abiding. and Now there is a way to avoid persecution. You can be a Christian and avoid persecution. Does anybody know what 2 Timothy 3.12 says? Yea, and all that will live, yes, I heard it, godly, in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What did that say? All that will live godly. Okay, don't live godly. Don't abide, don't obey, don't open your mouth, don't witness, and you won't be persecuted. So there is a way to avoid it. But if you want to live godly... And I hope you do. You will suffer persecution of one kind or another. All right, let's read the passage before I forget to do that, because (laughs) I just might. Let's go ahead and read verses 18 to 25, all right? This is right after the Lord said in verse 17, These things I command you that ye love one another. And immediately in the next verse, he says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, guess what? They will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they, now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without what? Without a cause. The, the information... 
on the coming hatred of the world that the Lord's men, the apostles, and of course all of his future followers would encounter once he departed from this world should not really have surprised these men at all, even this late in his ministry. They shouldn't have been surprised to hear about persecution. Why? Well, because from the very beginning, (laughs) God had talked about this. If you go all the way back, you know this verse by now if you've been in this study for any time, but all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God had foretold of the world's hatred, the hatred of the world's system toward the followers of the Christ, the coming Messiah, the coming Savior of the world, the promised seed of the woman. What did he say And to Satan as Adam stood there listening to God? say to Satan, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, between your seed, your followers, and her seed. Now, a woman doesn't have a seed. We've talked about that before. Speaking of the coming Christ, the miraculously born Savior, the promised seed of the woman. That statement, if you don't have it circled, highlighted in your Bible, you should. That statement, Genesis 3.15, called the Proto-Evangelium, the first evangelical message in the Bible, is really the key to understanding all of history. And also, it's the key to understanding the rest of the Bible. There is a battle waging. There is a war going on. And it is an ongoing battle between two diametrically opposed kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The hatred of the world toward God and toward his son, the Savior, Jesus Christ, and toward Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Have you noticed some uh, hatred against the Jewish people? Yes, it's been going on a long, long time, and it's continuing to go on. And toward followers of Christ, true followers of Christ, all of this is due to the animosity of the usurper God of this world, whose name is Satan. From the first moment Satan heard God's promise to send his son, the the seed of the woman, to redeem mankind and to bruise his head with a fatal blow, from that moment the evil one has focused all of his attention against him, against this promised Christ. At first... He used every ounce of energy and resource he had available to him to prevent Christ from ever getting here in the first place. He started right away with the children of Adam and Eve. He got hold of the heart of one of them, Cain, and had him kill his brother, Abel. And that continued. You know, Satan kept trying to prevent Christ from being able to come through the righteous lineage of, of uh, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and David. Remember how he had tried to have David killed, sent King Saul after David, and on and on. You know, the Old Testament is full of occasions when Satan is trying to wipe out the nation of Israel, and particularly his animosity is aimed at the righteous lineage that through whom the Christ would come. When he failed at his many attempts to prevent Jesus' arrival, once Jesus did get here, then Satan attempted to destroy the Lord, you know, after he was born, right away. You know, remember Herod's edict, the the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem? And there were many um, premature attempts on the Lord's life, like when his hometown people of Nazareth tried to pu- push him off a cliff and kill him. Many times the religious rulers would take up stones and he would just walk through the midst of them. Satan was unsuccessful during the Lord's ministry because we know he was on a divine time schedule, had a certain day, certain year, certain time to die, and nothing would prevent him from dying at the right time. But Satan also tried to tempt him to sin because if he could get the Savior to sin, then he couldn't be the Savior, right? And so we know about the temptation in the wilderness and all the other things he tried to do. He was finally able to build up the jealous hatred of the religious rulers of Israel so that he was successful and they did get grab Jesus and kill him. And Satan thought he was successful. Uh, but guess what happened? His little plan backfired on him, didn't it? All that Satan actually did 
was exactly what God had predicted back in Genesis 3.15. He bruised, Satan was able to bruise only because Christ allowed him, but he bruised the Lord's heel. But in the process, Christ defeated death, and in doing so, he gave a fatal bruise to Satan's head. Right? And so Satan is a defeated foe. He's merely awaiting fulfillment of the sentence already declared on him. But he knows he has nothing to lose in trying to change the outcome of things, so he has doubled his efforts to gain forces of hatred aimed at destroying the testimonies and lives of those Christ left behind to carry on his plan and purpose in his absence. He's also concentrated not only on Christians, but he is also concentrated on destroying Israel, as I am sure you have noticed. (laughs) And uh, why? Because, well, that's the nation through which his enemy came the first time, and that's the nation that the Lord Jesus plans to save at the time of his second coming. Also, it is the nation from which the Lord will rule and reign over this world during the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates Israel. He hates the Christians. And as the days grow closer to the Lord's return, his hatred intensifies. He knows his, he knows his time is getting short. And evil men under his control are waxing worse and worse, just as scripture said that they would. The world is growing increasingly darker. Only really the Spirit's work of restraining evil in and through the church... Uh, You know, we're still the light and salt of the, we're the only thing really in the spirit in us preventing this world from going into total anarchy and self-destroying. So the Lord had also, so from the very beginning, God had talked about this kind of evil hatred and persecution against God's people. But also the Lord Jesus himself had spoken about this many, many times, almost from the very beginning of his ministry when he gave that very famous sermon on the mount. What did he say in his eighth beatitude? The beatitudes began the Sermon on the Mount. The eighth beatitude is called the persecution beatitude, in which he said, Blessed are ye if men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. He said, if that happens, rejoice and be exceeding glad. You know why you can be exceeding glad and rejoice? If you're persecuted, remember, yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Oh, if I'm persecuted, that means I'm living godly. Yay, I can rejoice about that. (laughs) And uh, he said, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they, the prophets. And he could have said, for so they persecuted me too. You know, that's knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. And we can rejoice in that. Also, he had said... um, in their first mission, when he was sending them out on their first mission venture in pairs without him, remember that back in Matthew 10, he had said that he was sending them out as sheep, as sheep uh, in the midst of wolves. And then there was his denunciation discourse of Matthew 23, where he predicted that Israel's hypocritical religious rulers would be guilty of persecuting and killing God's servants, just as their forefathers had done to his prophets. There were many parables in which the Lord had talked about persecution. Remember the parable of the evil vine dressers and how they would kill the Lord's servants? Um, before and even after Christ. And then we saw in the Olivet Discourse, there was even a lot of mention about the persecution that would uh, happen to tribulation saints during the reign of the Antichrist. And now, at the very tail end of the Lord's ministry, he used an extended metaphor of the vine and branches to not only speak to them about his love for his own and the, the needed love that they had to have for one another. But he also talks to them about the hate that they would encounter in the field of this world. 
And as we noted in verses 17 and 18, there is indeed a sharp contrast. He goes from talking about loving one another to the hatred of the world. Now, the Lord, you know, was not in the business as are many pretentious or if I give them the benefit of the doubt, I would say very misguided ministries that have made use of the Lord's name. The Lord wasn't in that kind of business of saying things just to tickle people's ears and gain for himself a big following. I was thinking about this this morning. I was listening to Adrian Rogers, and if you don't, you need to listen to him on BBN. He comes on at 930 every morning. He's, he's with the Lord, but wow, he's powerful. Everything that comes out of his mouth is so profound. It's just incredible. Yes, he is. Whew. Anyway, I, and I was thinking, I don't know, he said something that just triggered my mind, and I was thinking, you know, the Lord, <laughs> don't get mad at me, okay? But the Lord didn't begin the Sermon on the Mount by a, having a rock concert, okay? He didn't have to draw in the crowds and have a rock concert before he gave them the message. All right, that was free. <laughs> the, the Lord wasn't in the business of tickling men's ears. He wasn't in the business of trying to draw a big crowd by, you know, creative methods, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, nor was he in the business of sugarcoating the truth. He did not promise health and wealth and success and no less if you just send in money and and think positive thoughts. You know, there's a whole lot of that garbage going on today. And that's exactly what it is. And I don't care who I offend because it's totally false. Totally false. Listen for, you know, I know we're women and my husband always calls me Eve because he says you're so easily deceived, Eve. And I say, all right, Adam, you sinned on purpose, you know. <laughs> but we tend to be deceived because we always want to look for the good and bit. But be careful who you listen to and what books you read. You can even get them in Christian bookstores, books. When you're listening to something or reading something, listen for key words like this. Have some discernment. Does the, does the man ever mention sin? That's a big one. Does he talk about sin? Does he talk about repentance? Um, or she, whoever, whoever it is you're listening to. What about um, the narrow way that leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction? That's not confusing. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Um, what about self-denial? Do they talk about that? Or godliness? Oh, that's strange. Talk about godliness? Separation? Nonconformity to this world? Do they talk about that? Or are they like this new trendy church movement? This is, I just got this newspaper on um, Valentine's Day. We were in a motel and it was, there, it was free under the door. <laughs> they don't usually have time to read newspapers. But I couldn't believe Startup Indiana Church uses sex to sell its message. Okay, New Day Church is uh, in Hendricks County, Indiana, is finding that sex helps to sell its message of faith. Hmm. One of the things many of these new churches, and these are called new, new something or other, new trendy churches, I can't think of the name of it, but anyway. One of the things many of these new churches are trying to do is imitate culture to bring people in. Hmm. Let's imitate the world. What about... Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Huh? How about that? How about this one? Be not conformed to this world. Well, you know, we're to be different. We're to look different from the world. When somebody walks into a church, it's not supposed to look like the world. They're looking for something different. And we're not to mold ourselves to the world. Totally. And it says here, um, I can get, I, my blood pressure is going up. I have to watch my health. <sighs> It says some, some of these new churches have services or events at non-traditional locations, such as tattoo parlors. Oh, let's meet next week at the local tattoo parlor. Or music venues, or even bars. They may host heavy metal concerts, skateboard competitions. I don't have anything against skateboards or 
motorcycle shows, or they may even have body-piercing events to spread their message. Excuse me? (laughs) The best way, and this is a quote from one of the pastors, the best way people can experience the love of Christ is on their level where they are comfortable. Excuse me, I don't want people coming to my church and feeling comfortable. I want them to feel convicted if they're lost. They need to feel convicted, not comfortable. Anyway, i got to go on or I'll get upset so much that I can't. You know what Jesus talks about? Here's some more words to listen to. Four. How about this one? Take up your cross and deny yourself. If you don't hear words like that, don't keep listening. If you don't hear words like that in your church, get up and leave and go to where you will hear words like that. Best thing you could do for yourself, for your family, especially if you have children. <sighs> most of you know most of these health, wealth, and things like that. You won't hear and this new trendy stuff. All this you won't hear words like this. You know why you won't hear words like these? Deny yourself, take up your cross, uh, nonconformity. Separation, because those kind of words don't draw big crowds. Those kind of words don't uh, make you popular. Those kind of words don't draw in the cash. But Jesus told things like they are to his friends, those who have ears to hear. And here's what he said. Look at verse 20. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me... They will also persecute you. And you can expect hatred and persecution and even excommunication from some of those ties that you thought would be stronger than they prove to be when Jesus is involved. Ties like even those as close as a husband or parents or children or childhood friends. Or co-workers, or even some of those in your own local churches. The Lord did not hide the fact of the world's hatred because he wants his true branches and his loyal friends to be prepared for the storm of satanic activity and persecution when it hits them. I wasn't prepared when it hit me as a new Christian. I wasn't forewarned about this as a new Christian. And when it hit me, wham, it hit me. And I fell down. And it took a while to recover. It came from people I never thought it would come from. You know, I thought the ties with my own family would be stronger than that. But when Jesus is involved, you can expect division, even from those closest to you. So he puts the facts to them as straight as possible. And he actually foretold of the intensified progression of the world's enmity that we have actually seen work itself out in history. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, he warned, first of all, about the world's hatred. And then in verse 20, that hatred, he says, will progress to the point of open persecution And we won't get here till next time, but in chapter 16, verse 2, he even tells them that they would be excommunicated from the synagogue, which to a Jew was like a life sentence because their whole lives revolved around the synagogue. And he even talked about expecting death, which we know came to all of the apostles. They were all martyred except for John, and he did indeed suffer greatly for his faith, but he was not martyred. And, of course, martyrdom has been true for millions of Christians down throughout the church age, even into the present day. They, I know you've heard this before, but they say that that more Christians were killed in the 20th century than in all of the 19 centuries previous put together. There's so many Christians being killed today for their faith. And we just don't hear about it because the news doesn't talk about it. But I sincerely believe that the 21st century is going to see the slaughter of more Christians and more Jews under the short but brutal rule of the Antichrist than this world has ever or will ever experience. Okay, so in this passage... The Lord not only told his men of the world's hatred, but he explained to them the reasons for that hatred. 
Now, in your books, you'll notice that I give you six reasons that he gave, really, in this passage, but that would take us too long to go through. So I'm going to, just for our discussion here this morning, I'm going to boil those down to two basic reasons for the world's hatred of Christ and his followers. In verse 19, he says that the animosity is due, number one, to the believer's distinct nature. The spiritual spiritual nature that issues from our relationship to him. We are not of the world, are we? We've been born again from above. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I wish we were all filled, but we're (laughs) indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're new creatures. Even if we don't see it, the world sees it, we're different. We're in the world But we're not to be, like these churches, of the world. We're to be different. Um, And there's a spiritual nature that just issues from our relationship to him. Where is our citizenship? No longer here. It's in heaven. And this is difficult for us to understand that there may be no reason for people's antagonism against us other than the fact that we bear his name. The name of Christ. We're Christians. And this is true. The world hates us because we're called by that name. And this is what James 2 7 says. The world blasphemes that worthy name by which we are called. In other words, it's the name Jesus that is the point of hostility. And it's always been that way from the very beginning. You can talk about God, you know, generic God. Well, the minute you start saying that name of Jesus, what happens? Woo! People start ricocheting off the walls. (laughs) And it's always been that way. You know, back in the first century, for example, there was this Roman statesman named Pliny the Younger. There was a Pliny the Elder. He was Pliny the Younger. A very powerful man who was given jurisdiction over Bithynia by the Roman emperor Trajan. We actually have, archaeologists have found letters that this man, Pliny, had written to the emperor with regard to his approach in persecuting Christians. This is way back in the first century. He told Trajan that what he would do is he'd have Christians brought before him and he would demand that they renounce that name, quote unquote, that name. What name was he talking about? The name of Jesus. And this was something he wrote that, quote, true Christians, he said this, he's an unbeliever, a wicked man. He said, this is something, emperor, that true Christians will not do. So you see, he's weeding out the true from the false. And if they would not, he explained to to the emperor, if they would not denounce that name of Jesus, he would have them put to death. You see, the issue wasn't that they were criminals. The issue wasn't that they were murderers or liars or evildoers, which Peter mentions in his first epistle. Peter actually wrote about persecution to the citizens of Bithynia in his first epistle. And he said, they're not going to, you know, persecute you because you're evildoers or they shouldn't. You shouldn't be evildoers. They're going to persecute you because of that name. Pliny didn't examine these long-ago brothers and sisters in Christ for about anything other than that name, the name of Jesus. And in the second century, Tertullian, he was one of the um, early uh, Christian theologians who, who did a lot of writing. He's the one who said that the blood of the saints, how does it go? The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, But he wrote that this, again, was the issue when it came to persecution and martyrdom of Christians. He wrote that the whole matter was their unwillingness to renounce that name of Jesus Christ. It's almost inexplicable that this should be such a cause of offense. Right? I mean, there's people out there that call on other names. They say they're Buddhists or... um, Zoroastrians or Muslims and they follow Muhammad Muhammad or they follow Joseph Smith and you know but when it comes to the name Jesus ooh you get such a different reaction 
And it's inexplicable unless you understand that there is indeed an unseen spiritual warfare going on between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the hatred against true believers has to do with our very different nature, our new nature in Christ. Now, you and I, we can almost seem to understand the, the hatred that would come against us from other religions, right? We can understand why the Muslims might hate us and, and why the Hindus might hate us, although they're pretty open. You know, the Hindus have three million gods and goddesses, so adding Jesus is no problem. You know, just add another one. <laughs> but uh, we can understand why you know, the world in general out there would, would hate us. But what is really shocking, this is what, you know, upset me so much as a new Christian, surprised me, is that historically a great deal of the persecution against God's people has come from people who also claim to believe in and worship the one true God. Cain, think of the first murderer, Cain would certainly have said that he believed in and worshipped the one true God, right? Of course he would have. Saul um, would have, the one who, you know, Saul became Paul, who stood by and watched the persecution and martyrdom of Stephen. He would have said and did say that he was doing it as a great service to the one true God. He surely would have thought that he believed in and worshipped the one true God. The Jews who hated and persecuted and crucified Jesus, certainly claimed to be worshiping the one true God, didn't they? And, and of course, you think of the Great Reformation. Um, Thousands of believers, true believers, were tortured and martyred by those who thought that they were doing the one true God a great service. Much of the animosity, much of the antagonism believers have encountered over the centuries has come from those who claim to believe in and worship God the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus explained in the rest of this passage. Because his persecution came from who? The very people of God. You know, Abraham's seed. The only people on the face of the earth at that time who knew, intellectually, thought they knew, the one true God. In reality, they didn't know him at all. They thought they knew him, but they didn't know him at all. So back to John 15. Why does the world hate Christians? Well, Jesus said, number one, in verse 19, it's because of our distinctive nature. We're not of the world. We're different. And number two, in verse 21, he said, it's because of the world's ignorance of God the Father. He says, look at this, but all these things they will do unto you for my name's sake. Why? Because they know not him that sent me. They profess to know God, but the proof of their profession is how they respond to the name Jesus Christ. Let no man think he truly knows God the Father if he rejects God the Son. You can't know one without knowing the other. So hostility against Christ and his followers, you see, is rooted in ignorance of God, the true God, not the God of man's imagination. Now, another question Jesus addressed in this section of his discourse was, can people like this really be held accountable Were those who clamored for his crucifixion, were they guilty or not? If if they were ignorant of the Father, which is what he just said, if they were ignorant of the Father, they didn't really know the Father, and that's the reason for their hatred and persecution of his son, then were they really responsible? Were they really liable? And he answers that question because he knew it would arise. And so he answers it in verse 22 when he says, and I know this is a confusing verse, but he says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. What he's doing here is saying that their ignorance of the father is inexcusable. And because of their ignorance of the because their ignorance of the Father is inexcusable, so is their hatred of Him 
And what is it that makes their ignorance and their hatred inexcusable? It is his words. Look again at verse 22. If I had not come and what? Spoken unto them, they had not had sin. Now, when he says they had not had sin, what he is saying there, he, do, he doesn't mean that they would never have sinned. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? He's not saying they never would have sinned or that they would not have been responsible for sinning. He's talking about their continued willful ignorance of the father that issued forth in their persecution of the father's son, of him and his followers. They would not have sinned the sin of persecuting Christ and his followers, so I know that's confusing, but you can go over it in your notes. But so, so again, we are finding out here how important the Lord's words are. If he hadn't come and spoken unto them, as we've discussed many times, his words revealed his father. He came to reveal the father to the world, to mankind, to the Jew first, and then they were to get the word out to the rest of the world. And in fact, his words, we found out, were the very words of the father. Right? His words were the words of the Father. You know, back in his first really incendiary miracle, the one that, the first miracle he really inflamed the religious rulers was when, in John 5, he healed that impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember that poor guy had laid there for 38 years, and then Jesus came along and healed him. That really upset them. But he defended what he did. And that miracle by saying these words, he said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. Who was he hearing? God. He was hearing his father. And in John seven sixteen, he said, my doctrine or my teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. John fourteen twenty four, the upper room. He said, the word which ye hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. All of this, you see, is illustrative or illustrative or however you say that word of John 1:18 where men say or God says through John no man hath seen God that's how that verse begins no man hath seen God you see people could use that excuse before Jesus came people could say okay yes i am partially ignorant of God the father I have the Old Testament. The Jews had the Old Testament, but the rest of the world didn't. I am partially ignorant of the Father because I have never seen him. No man hath seen God. So God had a solution for that, didn't he? And it was the rest of John 1.18. John 1.18, no man hath seen God, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He came here to declare him. That word is exegete. He came here to exegete the Father to us, to declare and explain him to us. Well, then, the words of the Father spoken by the Son bring us to the crux of the whole issue as to why men are inexcusable for their ignorance of God. You see, they now have the full revelation of God the Father. They not only hear his words through his Son, which have been inscribed in the written word, but they can see the Father now. No man has seen the Father, but now we can say we have seen the Father because we've seen him through, the, through his Son. The problem, however, is that what they hear... And what they see about the Father, the true Father, not the one of their own imaginations, what they see and hear ignites something in people, the unnatural man, I mean the natural man. It ignites something. You know what it ignites? Hatred, exactly. Why? Well, because it exposes them for who they really are. And they don't like what they see. And to illustrate this, there's a true story about a missionary who was off in a foreign land trying to witness to a very primitive people. And one day this missionary was standing outside of his tent shaving. 
He was shaving himself by looking in a small mirror that he had hanging from a tree branch. And as he was shaving, it so happened that one of the women from the local tribe was passing by. And she saw the missionary, and immediately she was very curious about his mirror, what he was looking into. She had never seen one before. So he invited her to come over and look into it, and she did. And for the very first time in her entire life, she saw her own image. And she was extremely startled by what she saw. Like me in the morning, I get up and look in the mirror. Ah! You know, who is that looking at me? My hair standing up and everything. And she was startled at the countenance, which, which was looking back at her from that mirror. And uh, she didn't like how hard that face looked or how horribly marked with disease it was and all the weird paintings on the face. And so she asked the missionary who it was looking at her out of that glass hanging in his tree. And he explained to her that it was her own face. And she didn't believe it. She didn't believe it. But finally, he was able to convince her of the truth. And when he did, she insisted on buying from him that mirror. She wanted to have that mirror. He didn't want to sell it because it was the only mirror he had, but she grew very heated about it. She insisted. She had to have that mirror. So because of her insistence and also because he didn't want to offend her, he's trying to witness to her people, you know, about the Lord Jesus, he did sell her the mirror for a mere pittance. And then, to his great and horrible shock, you know what the woman did? I know you know. She went over to the first rock she came to. That's <laughs> what I feel like doing in the morning sometimes. I just break the mirror and then I can forget about it, you know. But she took that mirror and she shattered it angrily against that rock, saying, now it would never, ever show her that horrible face again. That's a great solution. <laughs> and that's, you see, this is really, think about it, that's really a wonderful illustration of what happened when the Lord came and gave God's words to mankind. You see, the words of Christ revealed God the way he really is. He's, he's utterly holy, righteous, and not at all what the world or the Jews uh, of that day wanted him to be. He is interested not in the outer man, not in all the rituals and, and religions and feast days and everything like that, is he? What is he interested in, Sermon on the Mount? The inner man. He's interested in the heart. So, you know, that was just topsy-turvy from what they wanted him to be interested in. They could handle the hands and the feet, you know, but the heart, that's a different matter. So this was Christ's words as he revealed the truth about his father. And as he demonstrated what the father was really like by his own life, that was catalytic to hatred. Their hatred of Christ demonstrated their hatred of God. And that's why in verse 23 he says, He that hateth me hateth my father also. If he had not come and given the words of the father and the words about the father, they would have had a pretext or a cloak a covering for their sin of being ignorant of the father and doing what they did to his sons, his son. But those words were revelatory. They not only revealed the truth of what God is like, but what else did they reveal the truth about? What is this word likened to? Yes, just like a mirror. And when we look into the mirror of God's word, what do we see? Ooh, Oh, oh, you know, that hardened face, that face full of diseased sin and all those, uh, you know, ugly paintings and of, of my outer righteousness, which is like filthy rags. You know, we see ourselves for what we really are. And what should we do about it? What should you do when you look in the mirror in the morning? Make some corrections, right? <laughs> Please, before you come... <laughs> Break the mirror. That's a, that, but that's what the world does. You know, that's exactly what the world did. Look through history. You know, they tried to burn this book, destroy this book, discredit this book, get rid of the mirror, shatter it. Of course, you can't because it's eternal, isn't it? Grass might wither, flower might fade, but the word of God is 
endures forever. Will. But that's such a good illustration. Um, that his words revealed to men what they were really like. And just like that tribal woman, they were shocked and they were disappointed at what they saw. And so instead of seeking Christ's help to do something about what they saw in the mirror, his words inflamed them. And what did they do? They crucified him. <laughs> and you can see that this brings us right back to the first reason the Lord gave for the antagonism against his people. That's our distinctive nature. It's supernatural. Christians have a new nature. True Christians. It's something we can't see, but it's there nonetheless. Now, we can see the spirit of the evil in the world, can't you? Well, the world can see the spirit of righteousness, the spirit of Christ in us. Even though sometimes maybe we don't see it, they can see it. The antagonistic spirit in the world sees that nature, Christ in us, and it incenses them to anger. Do you believe in the unseen forces at work in this world Do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe that there's a spiritual war going on? I hope so, because if you don't, you're wrong. (laughs) It's real. Behind the antagonistic spirit in this world is the father of the fallen nature, the father of all rebellion against God, Satan. So this is is the age-long explanation for the hostility of the world to Christ, to Christians, and to the Jews. And now the Lord anticipates yet another question which he knew would arise from people. They might say, just as millions have down since he said this, uh, they might say, okay, so this Jesus said that his words were the words of God and his words are true. But the world is full of words. The world is full of people out there saying, I've got the truth for you. Here it is. You know, like Pilate. What is true? How can we possibly know? Jesus said his words were true, but how do we know that his words are true? Well, Jesus said, answer to this question, verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin, but now they have both seen and both hated both me and my father. Again, this doesn't mean they wouldn't have sinned or wouldn't have been responsible for being sinners, but it means that they would have had no cloak, no pretext for their sin of ignorance of the Father and hatred of both the Father and the Son. This time, Jesus says that they are not only inexcusable because of the words he spoke to them, but also because of his what? Works. His sign miracles. You see, they were, they served as confirmatory indicators that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God. They, his, his, his miracles confirmed that his message was true. And they were unique, he said, uh, uh, which none other man did. There were Old Testament miracles, right? Moses performed miracles. Elijah performed miracles. But actually, they did not perform the miracles. God performed the miracles through them. But their miracles were never on the scale that Jesus' miracles were. He showed his absolute power and authority over every single realm of life, including death. He had dominion over nature and over disease, over leprosy and sin, You ever hear Moses or Elijah forgiving someone of their sin? No, but Jesus could. He had um, dominion and power over blindness. He could give even a blind man his sight. And over death and over storms and missing limbs. He could replace a missing limb. And over demons and over fig trees and over fish and on and on. He performed creative miracles. He could multiply material substances. He uh, performed thousands of miracles. He probably touched every single life in Israel during his short public ministry because probably everybody was either healed or knew of someone who was healed or touched in some way by Jesus. There's no question that he did works that were unprecedented in the history of the world and have never, ever been repeated since. I challenge any of the supposed faith healers of this world to go to the closest cemetery and raise someone who's been dead and buried out there for four days, okay? That's my challenge to them. 
And I challenge any of these faith healers to go to their own local hospital and instantly rise from their sick beds, everybody in that hospital. You see, Jesus, his miracles, never had a time lapse. Instant, total healing. If Jesus did not do works like that, there might be an excuse for failing to receive his words, the words he spoke that were so offensive. But those offensive words were confirmed by those great, kind, beneficial works. Think about that. You know, Jesus never, ever brought evil to anybody, to any human being. He did nothing but good to people. He was benevolent. He delivered. He uplifted. He healed. He cleansed. He forgave. He resurrected. He liberated people. Everything was so good. Just the goodness of his works should have testified to the goodness of his message, even if it was offensive, even if what they saw in the message they didn't like and wanted to break it, you know. But those works, although they were the works of the Father, were the very things in some cases which caused people to persecute and hate Jesus. I'll give you one example. This brings us back to yet another question. Why did the works Jesus did arouse antagonism? I mean, it doesn't make sense. All he did was good for people. So why did they hate him so much? And I want to go back to one miracle that I mentioned earlier, that healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. That was a good thing for that man, right? 38 years laying there, impotent, couldn't even walk, couldn't do anything. Day after day, can you imagine 38 long years? And Jesus comes along and heals him, and the man gets up and is rejoicing, and he's happy. And why weren't the religious rulers happy about it? Do you remember what caused their anger and hatred of Jesus? He did it. Oh, my. He broke their traditions, their religious rules. He healed the man on the Sabbath day. And that's precisely the pattern of what goes on yet today. When you and I open our mouths and speak of the Lord Jesus Christ... Or when our lives are such, you know, that they are, in other words, they're godly, that they really give true evidence of having been changed, which is a work of Christ, isn't it? Isn't it a miracle of Christ when there's a changed life? That's the greatest miracle of all. I'm so glad I'm not the same person I used to be. I am a new creature in Christ. That's the greatest miracle of all. So that's a a work of the Lord. When people see this, people, I'm talking about professing Christians mostly who don't really know God say they do but they don't really know God you're going to have the same effect on them eventually that Christ had on the people of his day the people to whom you are ministering by and large in this country and the people around whom you are living are are in a comparable state to the Jewish nation with whom Jesus ministered They are people who, I know we're getting postmodern, but mostly, especially here in the Bible Belt, people mostly would say that they believe in God, right? Um, The same God that we call God, you know, not Allah or someone else, but God, the God of the Bible. And many of these people even would say that they believe in God the Son. But if they do not really know God and they have not themselves experienced God, the new birth, you're inevitably going to contradict what they believe. And then you're going to see the sparks fly. And you're going to experience some of the same things that Christ experienced. Examples. And this, you may hear this in some of your own churches or from some of your own people who, family members, whoever, co-workers who say they believe in God and maybe even say they believe in Jesus. But you might start talking and they'll say, oh, we don't talk about sin. They don't talk about sin in this, these churches. Or we don't talk about hell in this church. We just talk about the love of God, you know, because we want people to be comfortable, right? We don't want to run them off. We don't want to scare them. And, and we don't call God Father, We don't want to offend the women's liberation movement, so we call him she. Joan Stoltz, Catherine's daughter, just experienced that on a cruise. She volunteered to be in the the church services that they had on the cruise ship to be the piano player. And um, the, the minister gave a message and spoke of God as she. 
And Joan was highly offended, went to him afterward and said, excuse me, I am not going to play for you anymore. You you do not call my father she. But, you know, that's... He didn't want to offend... Well, he offended her, didn't he? But that's not just one isolated situation. That is going on. Or you might hear, you know, oh, we don't talk about the blood. That's gory. The world isn't wanting to hear about the blood. Um, And so they go through the hymn books and they take out all the references to the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the, what did they replace that with? (laughs) The what? Blank. Yeah, nothing but the blank of Jesus. You take away the blood and you have no remission, no forgiveness of sins. Or you'll hear them uh, say, uh, oh, uh, broad road to destruction. That's too complicated. We can't understand that. That actually happened to somebody in here I've heard about. How can you not understand that? That's pretty simple to me. Narrow road to life, broad road to destruction. Hmm. Or we don't, we don't talk about abortionists or fornication, adultery, homosexuality. I mean, what are you, judgmental? Judge not that you be not judged. Have you had that one thrown at you? I sure have. <laughs> or the, uh, the Bible isn't important, Catherine. I heard this one. The Bible Bible. We don't care about the Bible. It's the church. The church is what's important. And how dare you offend your family by leaving the church of your upbringing? And how dare you imply that we're not going to heaven, but you are. Who do you think you are? Better than us? Hmm. And by the way, you're so heavenly minded. You're no earthly. Good. Heard that one too. <laughs> and you're brainwashing your children. And you're wasting your life. I've heard that. I've heard that. Or how about this one? I couldn't get through this one yesterday. How could you possibly raise a son who would say to his grandpa, I love you, grandpa, and I don't want you to die and go to hell. How could you do that to us? My mom and dad, I wasn't there, and Chris witnessed to them. They got up, and they left, and I didn't see my dad for nine years wouldn't speak to me, wouldn't read letters I wrote him. My mother wouldn't talk to me for a year. Not easy. I've been there more often than I like. (laughs) So I can tell you from experience that I know, I know how much it hurts. But far more importantly, the Lord Jesus knows how much it hurts. Because (laughs) all, anything we've experienced is puny, puny compared to what he encountered. And because he knows how much it hurts, he gave us the words of verse 25. These are words that might help us when we are bewildered by the antagonism and by the anger and the hostility that comes our way. And we cry and we're so hurt and we're so frustrated, often by people who we have held the most closest to our hearts. I remember being at my mother's house um, out in New Mexico, and everybody, I was there, Frank wasn't with me, I was alone, and everybody was ganging up against me and mocking me and making fun and just saying nasty things. And I, I was doing pretty good holding my tongue, but I finally reached my limit, and I just burst out crying, and I said, I don't understand why you hate me so much just because I love Jesus. I don't understand. Because they all would say they knew Jesus too. I don't understand that. And I thought, you know, for years I thought it was the way I did it. I did something wrong. I said something wrong. I did it in the wrong timing. I had the wrong attitude. Maybe I was too bold. Maybe I was too shy. You know, and we can blame ourselves for doing this and doing that wrong. But Jesus helps us out here by telling us, look at uh, verse 25. He tells us, um, but this cometh to pass that the word might be filled that is written in their law. They hated me, what? Without a cause. Jesus tells us that the Old Testament, this is from Psalm 69.4, that the Old Testament predicted that he would be hated without a cause. There's absolutely no rational foundation for the hatred that they had against such a good man. No reason for it. 
He gave no just cause for his animosity. If you have shared your heart, and if you have pled honestly and caringly with people, if you have invited them again and again to Christ or to come with you to church, or to come with you to Bible study. And there's just this wall and this bristling that that happens. Remember that the scripture says it's causeless. It isn't you. It isn't you. (laughs) It, It has to do with our identity and our nature with Christ. And because of their Lack of really knowing God experientially. It's a spiritual thing for which there is no rational reasoning. And don't be deceived, by the way. I have no idea. You know, I think it's a mental thing. I keep forgetting my watch. (laughs) 20 till. Okay, well, I I won't. Just anyway, beware. We are living. I believe we're living in the end times. I believe if we don't see... The Lord's return, uh, things are going to get worse and worse. I fear for what our children and our grandchildren are going to see. Uh, We are going to be encountering more and more persecution. We see it happening now. I have news for you. It's not going to get any better. We need to be prepared and to honestly be able to answer this question. What if a Pliny came into power and called you before him and said, renounce that name? What would you do? What if he threatened to take your children from you? What if he threatened to take your life? Would you renounce that name? Remember, even unbelieving Pliny said, true Christians won't do that. Prepare your heart for that and prepare the next generation for that. I don't want my children and grandchildren to renounce that name because I want them to be in heaven with me. Don't you? All right. Thank you. I'm sorry I kept you long. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for this time that we have had here this morning. And as we have heard your word, may there truly, truly, genuinely be a willingness to hear with spiritual ears and to respond. May we be harmless as doves, but, oh, Lord, may we be bold to proclaim the gospel. May we not fear men. May we have holy courage as we witness the truth to those who so desperately need it. They don't know they need it, but they need it. And may your word prove to be living here because the truths Christ reveals to us in this passage are truths that will be encountered by us more and more as you delay your return. Father, deliver us from hardness of heart. Grow up in this place here, a people who are truly known as your disciples because of our love for one another. And Father, we yield our wills to you today because we know our utter failure to change ourselves apart from you. Now we ask that you'd go with every woman, be with her in a mighty strong way for the next two weeks and bring us all that together in two weeks where we pray, Jesus, in your beloved, precious name. Amen.